0: In 1869, one of the towering figures of the 20th century was born in rural India. It was a man named Mahatma Gandhi. And at that time, and still to this day, the Hindu religion had what they called the caste system. It was based on reincarnation. And they believed that different people were born into different castes, different levels of worth. And under the the caste system, people in a lower caste could not associate or or meet with or even speak to people in castes higher than themselves. It was an evil system, much like the apartheid in South Africa and much like the Jim Crow segregation laws uh, in, in America in the 1900s. But Mahatma Gandhi was a superstar academically. He rose up through the ranks. He got scholarships to high school. He got scholarships to college. And when he finally got to college there in India, he encountered for the first time the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he was powerfully drawn to those teachings. And so one Sunday he said to a friend of his, let's go down to the church and see and explore more about Christianity. They walked down to the church, the nearest church, and like a lot of the churches in India in that day, It had been started by the British ruling class that was ruling India. And as they got to the door of the church, they were met and told, we don't allow people like you in our church. Go worship with your own kind. And as they left that day, Gandhi apparently turned to his friend and said, if there's a caste system in Christianity, then I might as well stay a Hindu. And as far as we know... He never seriously considered Christianity again. And, and don't forget, this is without a doubt one of the most influential uh, people in all the 20th century. I'm not making a political statement here, it's just a, just a fact that his nonviolent protests, his way of protesting the British rule in India, ultimately led to them being an independent nation, the nation of India. And his philosophies, and his methods of doing that had a profound influence on Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in our country and his nonviolent approach to, to demonstration. And ultimately, it even led to Nelson Mandela, who had begun as a terrorist uh, revolutionary violent terrorist and after he got out of out of prison he was so moved by what gandhi had done that he began to adopt more nonviolent means and so who knows what might have happened what might have happened if there hadn't been this discrimination and this rejection of gandhi when he came to the church we will never know but that tells us a little bit about the possible ramifications of showing favoritism and discrimination in the church of Jesus. And that's exactly what our passage is about today. So my name is Al Hassler. I'm going to be teaching this morning. And if you've been here before, you probably notice that sometimes Dave teaches, sometimes it's me, and sometimes it's Steve. And that's not accidental. That's intentional. It is by design. I know that most churches have the model That one man teaches virtually every Sunday, and we would never be critical of that. That's a a standard model of, of doing church. But I personally believe that there is a small opportunity for damage to be done with that model in this respect. When the Word of God is taught faithfully and goes out in the power of the Spirit, lives are changed. That's what God promises to do in His book. And if only one man is teaching every single week, there's the danger, the temptation to think the changes that you are experiencing are because of that man, and you ascribe and attribute things to that man that should only be given honor to God. And so I'm grateful that our church chooses to do team teaching, because I believe what the scripture says, and it says this, it says the persuasive words of men have no ability to change lives. Over and over it says it in in, in different ways within within the Bible. And so I could get up here and stumble and bumble around and be ineloquent, and if God chose to use His Spirit to go forth, your lives would be changed by the Spirit of God. On the other hand, we could have the most persuasive, eloquent speaker up here, and if it didn't go out in the Spirit, you would just be entertained. There would be no life change. So I really believe when I teach this is the most important moment when we ask God to be here in a powerful way. So I'd be grateful if you join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this gathering. And I'm moved at this point always by your word that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. And Father, there's been a lot of labor here today. I know the setup crew and our worship team has worked hard, and the base camp, and so many other people, the, the brew crew. Father, we desire that that labor not be in vain. We, we ask you, we cry out to you to be here, Father, please. Only you can make the changes that we hope for. Would you please come and by your spirit heal marriages and, and encourage those who are discouraged and, and strengthen those who are feeling weak and heal those who are hurting and do a thousand other things that we can't even know about or understand. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're in the third week of our study in the book of James. We're calling this series, Unconventional Wisdom. Because the wisdom that James lays forth in this very clear book is unconventional. It's against what most people would consider... Normal thought processes. So he begins in the very first couple of verses by saying, consider it joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. That's not conventional wisdom, folks. And he carries that theme throughout the book of James. He also comes back again and again to the theme of true religion and actually putting your faith into practice. Again, unconventional wisdom for Christians to actually get off their bottoms and backsides and go out and put their religion into practice. So that's the kind of thing that James does over and over. And so we're teaching through this book, and we call it a book, but it was actually a letter written by James. He was in Jerusalem, he was a leader in their church, and he wrote this letter and he sent it out to the churches all over the known world. And it was specifically addressed to Jewish people who had become Christians they had apparently seen the resurrected Jesus or been impacted in some way by another believer, and they became Christians. And because of that, they were persecuted and dispersed around the known world. And we know that was his intent, because in the very first verse of the book, it says this is a letter to the 12 tribes, which would be Jewish Christians, dispersed throughout the nations. Now, we know that when they dispersed from the book of Acts, that mainly they were meeting in house churches. There were small groups. They didn't have a beautiful facility like this to meet in. And there were smaller groups. They would meet in house churches. And as you might imagine, when people from different walks of life come together, there were some tensions and and some difficulties in, in relationship. And the book of James addresses those also. So it is a very practical book. We also know from church history that James was martyred In 62 AD. We know that also from secular documents. And as a as a guy who used to be an atheist, I I hate to say it, but that's somehow strangely comforting to me because James was the brother of Jesus. And and when I first started searching out faith, I was thinking, well, maybe this Jesus is just a, a great con man, right? Maybe he just convinced people somehow to follow him. But you know, you can con a lot of people. But you can't con your brother, can you? He's going to see through that. There was no way James would have been a follower of Jesus, that James would have been willing to be martyred if he didn't believe the truth. Because what we know is what he had seen was seen his own brother crucified, his own brother raised from the dead three days later, and James became one of the most committed followers in the Jerusalem church. So let's get started. Let's look at uh, chapter 2 of James. And if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to that. If you have your devices or your apps, whatever uh, you all use these days, I've got the, the old Bible here. Um, you know, and also, if you don't have a Bible, we're more than happy to give you one. We give out free Bibles. We, we believe that everyone needs a Bible. They should, be, they should be studying their scripture at home on their own. So please uh, feel free to pick up one of the free Bibles we have. It's our gift to you. And what I'm going to do here, even though this is a pretty clear text, I'm going to go through and read, read the text and stop and explain and point out a couple of things as we read. So it begins like this, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, "Here's a good seat for you," but say to the poor man, "You stand there or sit on the door on the floor by my feet. have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts?" So the first thing James hits right away is that favoritism is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says this so strongly. He's in essence saying, you know, if you wanted to renounce your faith, if you wanted to announce to the world, I am no longer a Christian, he said one of the things you can do that would say that as loud and clear as anything else is begin to show favoritism. That is how evil favoritism is. And it's in his letter because he knows that's a natural human tendency and he gives a very specific example. In that passage we just read, he said, don't favor the rich over the poor. That's a, been a problem in every church that's ever existed since the beginning of time. That there's, there's a natural human tendency to favor those who are wealthy. And James says, don't do it. The second portion here says this, beginning at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? So here, James, is he's not trying to lay down a black and white rule, okay? He's using a technique where he lays out a general principle. And the general principle is that by and large in this era and throughout most Christianity... The people who chose to make a faith commitment, the people who chose to follow Jesus, were the poorer folks. This would have been obvious to the, to the churches that received this letter in, in time of James. they just look around and say, yeah, we're mostly poor. This doesn't hit us quite as hard because in the grand scheme of humanity, every person in this room with cars and, and homes and, and plenty of food are some of the wealthiest people who have ever walked this earth. So it doesn't hit us quite as hard, but this is a general principle and Jesus actually pronounced this and, and, and preached this when he first announced his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it's the very first time Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. And he comes to them and he reads the, the text of Isaiah 61. And he says, I have come to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the blind, and to set the captives free. And that's how he announces his ministry. And it's just this general principle that, generally speaking, wealthy people don't accept the gospel. He says over and over throughout the gospels how hard it is for the wealthy to come into the kingdom of heaven. He's just, he's just making the general observation that those who are accomplished, that those who are competent, have a much greater tendency to overvalue their own competence and abilities. Even the wealthy people have those gifts because of God using their hard work, but it's still a gift of God. And the poor people tend to understand and feel their dependence on God in a much greater way. And so James is pointing that out. That's the general principle. And the other principle, he says, is, look, the rich, they're coming into your your gatherings, your worship gatherings, and you're giving them the best seats. But there's another general principle that shows how ridiculous this is. Overall, a general, by a general rule, the rich are the ones that are oppressing you. The people with money, wealth, and power, they tend to be the oppressors in most societies. Again, this is a general rule. It, it isn't universal. But, but James is saying, how silly of you to treat them with, with such special favor when, by and large, they're the ones that are pressing you and dragging you into court. And so James is is really encouraging them not to show favoritism. Then he goes on in this next section, beginning at verse 8, says this. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles as just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And James here is just laying out one of the foundational doctrinal principles of our faith. And it's simply this. If you violate God's law, if you rebel against God's law, even in the smallest way, you are now separated from God. You see... God is infinitely holy. God is perfect. His character is totally inconsistent with any kind of sin. So even the smallest sin separates you from God and you have an irreconcilable relationship, but for Jesus. And, and what he's pointing out here is most people are sitting there, like, like I probably would be, and maybe some of you, and say, Well, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't committed adultery. Yeah, maybe I show favoritism now and then, but no big deal, right? That is not what Christianity says. Christianity says God is perfect and any rebellion, no matter how small, separates you from God, and then you are in need of a Savior. And then, then the last portion here, James says this, and this is beginning at verse 12, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what he's really pointing out here is, again, one of the foundational principles in the Bible and of our faith. There will be a day. There will be a day when each and every one of you stands before the God of the universe to give account for his life. And what James is saying is if you violate the law and you fail to give mercy and you show favoritism and you're not in Jesus, then you are going to be judged and separated from God forever. And so that is a a brief review of chapter 2. Like I said, James is a very practical book. I hope you'll be reading it consistently as we continue on this series. And and you might say, well, if it's that easy to understand and and if we've just gone through this and why don't we just... Call it a day and head on home. Well, there's something else in this this book we call the Bible. And it is the consistent message to leaders of a church to preach the word. So, So Paul wrote to his young pastor, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this. He says, I charge you before the God of the universe and Jesus Christ Almighty preach the word of God. And the dynamic here is is quite simple. You can read this at home. We hope you do. You should be doing that. And God will convict you at times. But there are other times when perhaps there's a blind spot, where where you don't really feel what the scripture is saying to you. And it is the job of the leaders of the church, and I I really believe that Dave and Steve and I do this as, as consistently as we can, where we pray and ask God, what is there in this passage, Father, that you would like us to point out? to the people we love, the, the members of our Rock Hills community. And so in, the, in my week of preparation, I heard three things in, in response to that. The first is just really obvious. It's said over and over in this passage, don't show favoritism. Don't show lavish attention on pe- certain people. And, and the reason we call this series, one of the many reasons, Unconventional Wisdom, is because that is what our society is all about, is lavishing attention on certain people, i.e. the rich and the famous, right? You can't go past the newsstand. Every magazine is about the latest movie star and, and sports figures and everything else. The rich and the famous, we obsess over them as a, as a country and as an American people. It's, it's almost nuts. Now, you might say, yeah, but that's not me. And I want to tell you, I think you probably have that tendency. I've even seen it myself. A lot of you know Ryan Carroll back there. He works in RIT and um, he's got his own IT company. And, you know, Ryan's kind of a jerk. I don't really like Ryan very much. <laughs> but, but a while back, I found out that he has a sweet uh, boat, ski boat, that you can go, like, Wakeboarding in, and I'm a surfer, and you can actually it it creates a a a wake that you can surf on. So I thought, well, I'm not going to show favoritism. Even people who are jerks need to have friends. So I started hanging out with Ryan, and sure enough, he gave me the invite to the lake, and we went surfing. And okay, you can—everybody, I think, knows Ryan's one of my best friends here and a great guy. But even—I think everyone has a, well, sort of a great guy. Everyone has a tendency to think in terms of, well, that's kind of cool, what can he do for me? If you even have a slight tendency toward that, then you are violating God's law. Let's try to make it a little more practical maybe for you. Let's say you're in here next week and one of the spurs came in. Kawhi Leonard, let's say. Or maybe Mayor Julian Castro. Or maybe your favorite movie star, maybe Channing Tatum or whoever, fill in the blank. <laughs> and, you, and, you, and you look over and you see this person. And you're probably going to be thinking, well, you know, uh, the, the, the Christian thing to do is go you know, greet the visitor and make sure they feel at home. And, and you, you might go over there. And, and, and I would suggest that even if you didn't do that, you'd be tempted to do that, right? Now, the question I have for you, how many times... Have you sat in this room, you looked over at a strange face that you never met, and not gone over to greet them? I bet you it's happened many times. And don't you see? You begin to maybe get in touch with the idea that maybe I do play favorites. And folks, this is incredibly destructive. Let's give one more setting where, where this might happen. Let's just say... You're in a pizza parlor. You're you're having some pizza. And Kawhi Leonard or Julian Castro or somebody comes up and says, you know, I'm so embarrassed. I forgot my wallet today, and I'm really starving. Any chance you could, you know, share your pizza and let me have a slice of pizza? I bet you every one of us, sure, sit down and, and strike up a conversation, right? Well, what if that was not some famous person but a homeless person? What if it was somebody who's shabbily dressed? What would we do? Well, as it turns out, I have a video today that, that, that shows that. And, and the guy in the video is a little hard to understand. He's got a strong accent. But what he's doing is he's going into a pizza place, and he's saying, Sir, I'm hungry. Would you share your pizza with me? And let's see what happens. Can I get a slice of that pizza? I'm hungry. No. 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 I'm hungry. Can I get a slice? No. Nice. Hey man, you're looking kind of hungry. I am, bro. Thank you. So we got that for you. Thank you very much. Have a good day, man. Got any more slices left in that? What? Have you got any more slices left? Yeah, yeah, I have a slice. Yes. Thanks, bro. bunch mm-hmm. mm-hmm. very There's a power in that video. I think the power comes from just imagining ourselves in that restaurant and what we might do. And it just makes me feel horrible to say, I think I would have said no to that guy. And that's the showing favoritism this passage is all about. You see, in the very first verse of this chapter... James connects showing favoritism to rejecting the gospel. What he's really saying is if we show favoritism, we have done damage to the reputation of Jesus. And we have no idea what the ramifications that will be. Just look at what happened to Gandhi. But the the flip side of that, the, the beautiful side of that, is what can happen if you actually show love And concern for those less fortunate, and I've seen that every year when we go down to Honduras, it's just an amazing dynamic. So a group of us go into this village. They know we're rich Americans. They cannot believe that we're down there working side by side with them, putting in a water system that will give give them clean water for the first time in their life. And last year we went to a little town called El Orno, and one of my one of my compañeros was Julio, and he was a Christian. Out of 400-some-odd people in this town, there was about 20 guys who were Christians that had a small Christian church. And as I was talking to Julio toward the end of the week, he said, you have no idea what impact you have had by coming and putting in this water system. He says, there's been Christians come through sharing tracts and sharing the gospel, and really nobody responds. But so many guys that I've invited to church that said no in the past Because of what you are doing, because of you actually working alongside them, making them feel like you're an equal to them, they are going to try the church. And a couple of months later, Mark, the the head of impact, was, was talking to Arnaldo, our local. And the word from Julio was that the church had more than doubled in size. More than 20 guys had begun coming because of the impact that our water project had. They actually saw the gospel embodied in us not showing favoritism. Now, I don't believe I can teach on this passage in 21st century America about drawing distinctions and favoritism and discriminating based on rich and poor without talking about one of the greatest evils in our country's history, and that's slavery and racial discrimination. And many of you know my daughter and my son-in-law, Mike. I really consider him a son. My daughter and my son, Mike. Mike. And if you've met Mike, you probably think he's just got a really good tan. You know, it's like a Pastor Dave quality tan. But, but, but it's not true. Mike is actually African American, okay? So this is, a, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I, I've known Mike, uh, I think they've been married seven or eight years, and I've known Mike for about 14 or 15 years. I have never once heard him whine or complain about racism in this country. Never once. But in the course of those 15 years... I've had occasional glimpses in an unguarded moment when we're talking about another subject. I've had occasional glimpses of the hurt and the pain that he's experienced because of racism in our country. And I can say the same thing about my Latino friends here in Rock Hills. So many of you have experienced the same thing. And you can't deal with this passage without mentioning that evil in our country. And I want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. The Bible says all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the the black, the white, the yellow, the red, and, and the brown, and everywhere in between. The Bible says to show favoritism is evil. The Bible says to harbor racist behaviors or tendencies is inconsistent and a rejection of the gospel of Jesus. I hope that's clear. The, the, other, the other point that I see here, as James is dealing with this, is the idea of community. He gives us all these practical things to do, right? Be nice to people, love others, you know, help, help others. Where are we going to put that into place? Where, where are we going to put these instructions into place in our life? Let me ask you a question. Who here would like, would hope, that two years from now, they're a more mature, kinder, more loving parent or person let let's see let 's see who show of hands. I think everybody right we all hope that we 're going to be a, a better person two years from now, kinder, more loving, more giving. How are you going to get there, folks? You think it 's just going to happen magically? You think if you go home and sit in front of the television and watch TV every night and isolate yourself and on the weekend just Just go play golf or whatever you like to do? You think that magically you're going to become a better person? Of course not. There's a startling passage in Proverbs. I think we have it, Proverbs 27, 17. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And just think of that image. If you you want to get a knife sharp, you can't just wave it against the air, right? You can't just let it sit, isolated by itself, can you? The image is, you go like this. And what happens? Rough edges get shaved off. Sparks fly. Christianity was meant to be lived out in community. You know, I've been part of trying to get people connected to rock groups here at at Rock Hills for the last couple years. And and I understand there's a hesitation to go into somebody's home that you don't know and and start. You know, our rock groups are smaller groups of Rock Hill people that usually meet every couple of weeks, every other week in somebody's home. where We study the Bible. We uh, we break bread and, and eat together, and every rock group has a little bit different methodology, but that's what it's about. And I tend to almost get this sense from people, well, I'd like to do that, but you know, they don't say it directly, but maybe those people are going to let me down, or maybe they're going to hurt my feelings. Well, let me promise you this. If you get involved with a rock group for long enough, they will let you down. They will hurt your feelings. Because I know something about every single person in this room. You're fallen. You're a sinner. You're imperfect. If you know me long enough and you're friends with me long enough, I'm going to let you down. You can bank on that. And you're going to let me down. But that gives us the opportunity to put into place all these wonderful teachings that Jesus had about loving others and forgiving and turning the other cheek and extending grace that's why we do life in community. So after this service, after, we're going to pray for the guys heading to Honduras. And then Dave and I and a couple other rock group leaders, I think, will be up here. And if you'd like to know a little bit more, you don't have to commit if you come up, but feel free to come up and ask some questions if you, if you maybe would be interested in a rock group. The, the last point I want to make is about the nature of the gospel. You see, you can take all these very practical instructions that... That um, James gives in this passage, and it ends by saying, basically, if you don't extend mercy and judgment, if you, if you, if you, uh, excuse me, if you don't extend mercy and kindness and love, and you, and you violate this rule, then you're going to get judged. And it would be real easy to misconstrue this passage and think what he's saying. If you don't follow these rules. You are going to be separated from God. And that's not what the gospel says, folks. Every other religion, whether it's Buddhism or Hindu, which Gandhi followed, or or Islam, no matter what it is, is essentially a great teacher trying to ascertain how to get to God then setting forth these rules for you to follow. And and these religions all have people running as hard as they can, following all these rules, hoping to be made made right with God. And what the Christian faith says is that's impossible. You can't get right with God by your actions. The Christian faith is called the gospel for a reason. The gospel just means good news. So what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Jesus was crucified took the penalty of our sins upon himself. He was God himself, so he could take all the infinite punishment deserved. He took that upon himself. He rose three days later. And people were so amazed. People were so blown away by this wonderful news that they spread out from Jerusalem to tell the news that we have been made right with God. So Christianity, correctly understood, is not a religion at all. Christianity is news of a historical fact that Jesus took our sin, died, and resurrected from the dead, making us right with God. And he did that for everyone. So showing favoritism is totally inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus. You know, there was one other story that came out of Honduras uh, two years ago. I was down there with a, with a group, including Art Lopez, and, and Art's fluent in Spanish, and he just had an amazing impact on the guys in the village, and, and I was fortunate to work alongside Art during that week, and, and we were working together on this project, and, and one of the guys that, he, that really connected with Art was a 19-year-old young, young fella by the name of Jimmy. And by the end of the week, Jimmy was almost following Art around like a little puppy. I mean, he was just asking questions. He, he just had this connection with Art, and he was growing and learning. And, and I had a chance to, to meet with, with Jimmy, and, and Art, actually, Art and I actually went over and had dinner with his family. It was just an amazing time for all of us. But by the time we left, Jimmy had not asked all his questions about the Christian faith. He was, he was not ready to make a faith commitment. And so what Art Lopez did was he said, okay, Jimmy, here's what we're going to do. Every Saturday morning, I'm going to call you, and we're going to study by cell phone. We're going to study the scripture together. Folks, Art is an executive at KCI. Jimmy is a 19-year-old in Honduras with a fourth-grade education who lives with his parents in a a shack with a dirt floor, who has nothing, nothing to give to Art Lopez. Why would Art do that? Why would he spend his Saturday mornings pouring into the life of this young man? Well, I'll never forget the day, a couple of months later, Art came up to me at church. He had a big smile on his face. He said, Al, you're not going to believe it. Jimmy has given his life to Jesus, and he and his family are now going to church. And we just, we we were choking up just like I am now. We just celebrated. We gave each other a big hug. That God would choose to use a couple of guys like us to be a small part in changing the eternal destiny of this young fella that we like so much is one of the greatest satisfactions. You know, Art and I have done a lot of stuff over the last two years. And I think we both would say That is one of the highlights of our last two years. And so, folks, there is an incredible power in this. There's a power in not showing favoritism, there's a power in loving those less fortunate. And there's a power in the gospel. Let's pray.